Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. So this morning, we're continuing this series that we started, Stuff Every Christian Should Know. Today we're in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi, actually we're in a couple of different passages today. We're going to start in Malachi chapter 3. Uh, a little bit later in the message, we're going to get over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. By the way, I believe I feel warm air in this room. Is it the preacher or is our heat actually working now? David, do we have heat? We have heat. Good deal. Uh, so Malachi chapter 3, while you're turning there, let me tell you a story about a little boy. His mom uh, was sending him off to vacation Bible school one morning, and uh, she gave him two nickels. And she said, now son, one of these nickels is for you. The other nickel is for you to put into the offering at vacation Bible school today. And so uh, she sent him out the front door, and he went skipping down the, the sidewalk, down the block to, uh, to the church where VBS was. And uh, on the way down, he, he, he stubbed his toe. And as he's stumbling, he loses a grasp on, on the two nickels, and one of them rolls off uh, into the storm drain, never to be seen again. And as he watches it roll away, he says, Goodbye, God's nickel! You see, even at an early age, people learn to obsess about money. You know, if they have it, they want to keep it. If they don't have it, where can they find it? You know, and their attitude toward money becomes oftentimes something like, oh, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the lid. And folks like that really don't understand what it means to be rich toward God. So today we're talking about giving. Whole giving actually is the title of the message, and you'll figure out whole is actually an acronym. But uh, some pastors, you know, they don't want to talk about money because they don't want to a, a risk of, uh, offending people. Oh, a preacher, all he does is talk about money. The church, all they want is your money, money. Um, they don't want to offend people, or they don't want to perpetuate that stereotype that the church just wants your money and nothing else. I think, to be honest, that stereotype is probably perpetuated by people, the same people who say that, you know, they can more easily worship God through nature, or that the sanctuary is always too cold, or the pews are too hard, or the services are too long, so forth. Uh, folks, truth be told, I would rather risk offending you than offending God by neglecting His Word. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about finances. In fact, two-thirds of Jesus' parables had some sort of teaching that dealt with matters of finance. Why? Well, because it's a subject that just about everybody relates to. Now, I don't want, you, don't want you to get the wrong impression here. I mean, there is nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with material possessions. They are neither inherently good or evil. They're just tools. And hey, you know, if God has blessed you materially, that's fantastic. But you see, Jesus often taught us that material wealth can sometimes present signs of some underlying problems, problems that might even exist with church people today. And that problem begins with a misunderstanding of just who the owner of our wealth is. 
Well, the Lord makes it pretty clear. Psalm chapter 50, verse 12, he says that the world is mine and everything in it. And David in, in Psalm 24, verse 1, says something very similar when he says that the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. So it's all His. He simply just made us managers of it while we're here on earth. But we tend to act like it's, it's all ours. It's all ours. Uh, we often keep it to ourselves. And that can be problematic, especially when you read what we're about to read in the book of Malachi. Before we read that passage in Malachi chapter 3, though, let me give you just a little bit of context, some background. Book of Malachi was written to God's covenant people, not in a time of crisis, because this actually happened after the Babylonian exile. But it was a time of spiritual decline. Uh, just before a 400-year period of silence between the, uh, the Testaments. But it's a time of spiritual decline. And there's a series of arguments in the book initiated by God as he brings accusations against his people because they'd wandered from the, from the covenant and they neglected the full experience of life with him. And one such accusation that God makes has to do with the stinginess of his own people. So follow along with me there in Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. God speaking through the prophet Malachi says this, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. And bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. Really the big idea behind this passage in Malachi chapter 3 is that returning to the Lord really involves every aspect of our lives, including bringing offerings to the Lord instead of robbing God by withholding those offerings. Folks, God wants us to learn to be grateful and to share what he's given us for his glory. And he blesses us in the process. I mean, that's why he says here in Malachi chapter 3, test me, let me prove myself. Now, if you're a parent or a grandparent, at some point you've probably taken a toddler to McDonald's. They like to go to the play place. You know, they like to get the little, the, the, the Happy Meal with the toy and the, maybe the chicken nuggets and the little bag of French fries. And if, if you've kind of got a mischievous streak like me, maybe you saw that toddler sitting there eating the nuggets and fries and you reached over and tried to, to grab a crispy French fry from that bag. Now, more often than not, how is that toddler going to respond? Yeah, that kid's gonna grab that bag of fries and go, mine! Mine, Daddy! But, are they really? Think about it. Who actually paid for those fries? It was the parent or the, the grandparent. See, a lot of us just don't quite get it when it comes to giving to the church. 
We forget who our money actually belongs to. Maybe you've heard of this, the whole concept of the 80-20 rule. You know, that, that 20% of the folks in the church really carry the financial burden for the other 80%. Actually, according to some research done a few years back by the Barna Group, only 6% of born-again Christians in America tithe. So you really ought to call it the 94-6 rule. But look at the flip side of that. What if every Christian in America did tithe? See, according to research by a group called Empty Tune, a nonprofit research organization, if U.S. Christians were giving their churches the biblical tithe, the churches would have 143 billion more dollars to carry out the work of the ministry, to share the gospel with the world. So we have to ask ourselves, I mean, when we're confronted with this, this topic, we have to ask ourselves, are we consumers or are we contributors? Now, you might recall last week's message, we talked about how worship really isn't about us, that it's all about God. Well, likewise, your money really isn't about you because it's not yours to begin with. It's all about Him. It's all about what He's graciously entrusted into our care to manage for Him. So it should be used for His honor, right? So this morning, we're going to take a look at God's method of financing the work of ministry. We're going to take a look at what I like to call whole giving, W-H-O-L-E. That's an acronym. You'll figure out what it means as we go along. Whole giving. But here's the first aspect of whole giving that I want you to get. Number one, worship, or giving rather, is an act of worship. That's the W in your acronym. Giving is an act of worship. Let me give you a couple of examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. Uh, just earlier in the service, we were singing um, uh, from, from the old hymn, you know, that, that lyric about, here I raise my Ebenezer. For years and years, I never understood what an Ebenezer was. I thought it was the guy in the Scrooge story. No, an Ebenezer is a memorial stone. In fact, we were just studying this passage in uh, Genesis 28 about a week and a half ago in our midweek Bible study. There's a situation where Jacob, uh, well, Jacob's gotten himself into trouble because he's, he's robbed his brother of the birthright. He's deceived his father uh, in order to receive the father's blessing. Now he's on the run. And God, instead of extending wrath to him, actually is very gracious to him. He receives a vision from God in Genesis 28. And he says, the Lord will be my God. This stone, this Ebenezer, this stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house. And I will give you a tenth of all that you give me. So after Jacob encountered God, he set up an altar. Now we recognize that altar is a place of worship, a place of sacrifice. And it says that Jacob returned unto God one-tenth of what was given to Jacob. Now understand Jacob was not motivated by commandment. He was not motivated by law or decree. He was motivated by an attitude of gratitude. Something that, you know, this time of year, especially around Thanksgiving, we should be mindful of. You know, he, he wasn't doing this because of some sense of legalism. He was doing it out of love. So when we give to the Lord, we are literally saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your continual presence in my life. Thank you for taking care of my everyday needs of food and water and shelter. 
Jacob's giving was an act of worship. Now here's a great New Testament example of that. John chapter 12, it's a scene right after Lazarus' resurrection and just days before Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. He's reclining at the table with some folks there in Bethany and with Lazarus when Mary approaches Jesus with her gift. And if you've read the story, you remember it was a pound of pure, costly, scented ointment in a jar carved from, a, from rare alabaster. And without invitation, Mary takes the most expensive thing she had and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. She, I mean, she knelt down weeping. She wiped his feet with her hair. She worshiped. The whole house was filled with the smell of her sacrifice. Now what Mary did, that was extravagant. She cried openly as she displayed her deep affection for Jesus in front of a whole room full of people. Now, if you read the story, you also know Judas got angry. You know, he felt that an entire pound of ointment was wasted on Jesus' feet. But you see, maybe this jar contained the only thing that Mary possessed that she considered a valuable enough gift to give to the Lord. And think about it. Had she not given that gift to Jesus that day, that pound of perfume surely would have been wasted. I mean, it certainly would not have been remembered two millennia later as the offering that prepared Jesus' feet for what was coming with his walk to Jerusalem and his final week on earth. Mary's gift was, is still remembered today as an unbridled, sacrificial act of worship. So, just as giving is an act of worship, here's the second thing in your acronym. Giving is also an act of holiness. That's the H in your whole acronym. It's an act of holiness. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. That's actually the first scripture where we actually see the, the tithe terminology in the Bible. Uh, this particular English translation reads this way. It says, every tenth of the land's produce, grain from the soil, or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord and is holy to the Lord. I don't know about y'all, but that's awesome to know. I mean, the fact that when we give our offerings to God, it's received as something holy, as consecrated, sacred. Now, none of y'all know me as well as I know myself, but I'm going to tell you right now, there's not a whole lot about me that is holy. And yet, it's encouraging to me to know that God only, not only receives my gift, but he considers it something holy. To him, it is a holy act. But maybe you're wondering, well, okay, what is all this tithing business about, Pastor? What does that word mean? Well, a very simple translation is a tenth. The word tithe means a tenth. That was the building block of God's finance plan. Uh, Abraham was really the first to establish that practice of tithing when he gave a tenth of all of his wealth to King Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. Now, as the writer of Hebrews is reflecting back on that in Hebrews chapter 7, you know, he talks about how, how Abraham uh, 
paid tithes to Melchizedek, it says, uh, who was God's king and the priest of Salem. He, he was offering the spoils, or depending on your translation, I'll say choicest spoils or chief spoils there in, in, the, in Hebrews chapter 7. The Greek word is uh, akrathinion. It literally means the top of the heap. Basically, the choicest bounty, the first fruits, we would call them. You see, under the law, the Jews were to offer the first fruits of their crops and their, their herds. Exodus 23 9 says, Bring the best of the first fruits of your land to the house of the Lord your God. Now, we find out later in the days of Judges, uh, specifically uh, toward the end of the period of the Judges, uh, 1 Samuel, that the priestly sons of Eli were condemned because in offering sacrifices to God, they took whatever they wanted first and just gave the leftover. And if you've ever read the story, you know, things did not work out very well for those two guys. But that raises a question. Does God actually delight in receiving our leftovers? I mean, does he deserve leftovers? Well, obviously the answer is no. Now, the Christian should set aside a reasonable portion of his income to God first, then adjust his living standard accordingly. Now, regrettably, most folks, they get that in the reverse order. You know, it's all about giving God whatever's left after we've separated what we need to live on. Now, when you read this stuff in the Old Testament, you know, some people are invariably, they're going to say, well, you know, preacher, that was in the Old Testament. That was God speaking to the Israelites. Show me something in the New Testament. Well, I can do that. But you know what? A lot of those passages in the New Testament actually point back to the Old Testament, like the one in Hebrews chapter 7. Points us right back to Abraham. But you want to know the real New Testament concept of giving? It goes way, way beyond a mere tenth. I mean, read the book of Acts sometime. It says in Acts chapter 11 that each Christian was giving as he may prosper or according to his ability, it says. That's called proportional giving. And amazingly, some of those Christians in the early church gave far beyond their ability. Second Corinthians chapter 8, good example of that. And they were commended for it. Many of those first century Christians gave everything they had for the cause of Christ. So if we really want to follow a New Testament example of giving, maybe we should give the 90% and keep the 10% for ourselves. Oh, you know what, preacher? I think that Old Testament stuff doesn't sound quite so bad after all, does it? <laughs> but honestly, how can we do that? How do I do that? How do I give generously to God and still have enough to live? Well, it's all part of what I like to call the heavenly math or uh, the calculus of God or the divine algebra. And basically it's this, that if you give back the 10% to God, the 90% that you keep goes so much farther than the 100% would have had you kept it all to yourself. That's the calculus of God. Doesn't make sense to a mathematician, but to anybody who walks by faith, it makes perfect sense. Think of it this way. Consider your giving as an investment in the kingdom of God. And Jesus spoke to this in Matthew chapter 6. We read that uh, scripture a little bit earlier in the service from the Sermon on the Mount, verse 19. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Well, you know, if I tithe, Pastor, what do I tithe on? Do I tithe on my gross income or my net income? Well, it depends. Do you want gross blessings or net blessings? <laughs> I mean, you, you reap what you sow, right? Sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. See, since giving is an act of holiness, we, God's people, are to bring our first fruits to God, not the leftovers. We bring our first fruits. I mean, he's the one who's, who provided them to begin with, right? So we see that giving is an act of worship. We see that giving is an act of holiness. Here's the third thing I want you to notice. Giving is also an act of obedience. That's the O in your acronym. Giving is an act of obedience. I mean, it's, it's just the right thing to do. Jesus' uh, half-brother, James, who wrote the book of James, you recall what he said in James chapter 4, verse 17, so it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. Or if you were raised reading the King James, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, it is sin, James says. Folks, I, I personally believe that the giving of our tithes is one of the hardest areas for us to be obedient because, I mean, it affects every other area of our life. Well, the fact is the average church attending Christian gives less than 3% of their income back to the Lord. In fact, get this, if every Christian were to lose their jobs and to go on welfare and just tithe from what they receive from their welfare check, giving in churches in the United States would increase over 30%. That just shows us that as Christians, we're generally willing to give God the credit but not give him the cash, if you know what I mean. Perhaps you'll recall the parable of the rich fool. It's Luke chapter 12. Guy comes to Jesus and he tells Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus looks at him like, dude, who made me your arbitrator? But in response to that, he begins to, to teach on this very matter. Verse 15, he tells the folks assembled there, it says, he told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. And to illustrate what he's teaching, Jesus tells them this, this story about the rich fool, a guy whose desire was just to accumulate more and more and more, a guy who said to himself, you have many goods stored up for many years, take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. That's in verse 19. But listen to what Jesus uh, says. You know, God, in response to the, the rich fool, says this to him. He says, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Believers, God asks us to honor him by giving him tithes and offerings for the sake of his kingdom. It's an investment in the work that he's doing here on earth and in rewards to, to one day be received in heaven. And to neglect that would be blatant disobedience. 
But pastor, I know you're thinking it. Somebody's thinking it. Pastor, I cannot afford to tithe. Actually, you can't afford not to. I mean, think about what we just read a few moments ago in Malachi chapter 3. Remember what God said would happen if we robbed God? It says that we would be cursed. Now, what did it say would happen if we were rich towards God? If we give back to God what God already owns, it says he will open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing. So, which do you prefer? A blessing or a cursing? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If we truly love him, we're going to obey him. Understanding that being rich toward God, it's not just about finances. It's about offering our whole lives in gratitude for our salvation. See, God's not nearly as interested in our money and our offerings as he is in our submission, our obedience. I mean, the, the, the truth is that he, he really doesn't need our resources to accomplish his plans and his purposes. After all, he already owns it all, right? He owns everything. He doesn't need anything from us. But that is the way that he chooses to work through his church. What he really desires, though, what he values is a heart that is overflowing with gratitude and thanksgiving thanksgiving to the Lord who, who saved us, who gives us all things, knowing our needs before we even ask him, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. That is the kind of heart that gives generously, willingly, cheerfully in response to the love and to the grace that abounds to us in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to explore that passage in just a few minutes. But folks, the Bible's clear. If we have an area of our life that we're not in obedience in, it's not so much that we have an obedience problem, it's because we have a love problem. Well, that leads me to the next thing, really. Yes, giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of holiness. Giving is an act of obedience. But it's also, fourth letter in your acronym, L, it's an act of love. You've probably heard the old saying, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Now, I mentioned that uh, parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. You'll also re recall in Luke chapter 18, Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Luke chapter 18, ruler comes to him, says, good teacher, what must I do to in inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, well, you know all the commandments, and he lists them off. And God says, yeah, I kept all of these. In verse 22, Jesus says, it says, when Jesus heard this, he told them, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Is there anything in your life that's more important to you than God? Anything that you place more value upon than God? Anything that you love more than God? 
a business, a relationship, maybe it's a hobby, your favorite sport. You know, the bottom line is that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And all of those things, as wonderful as they are, are things that come from Him. He's provided it. He's given you your job. He's given you your business. He's given you your family and your friends, your leisure time. And if we set any of those things above God, He's requiring us to bump those down the list of priorities so that He might take His rightful place, so that He might take first place in our lives. He gave us those things, and He can take them away. But we give back to Him a portion of that because we love Him. You remember what the Apostle John wrote, 1 John 4, 19. We love Him because He first loved us. And our giving is an expression of that love. You know the, uh, the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, there where uh, the Apostle Paul talks about how God loves a cheerful giver. Now, not a begrudging giver, not a reluctant giver, but a cheerful giver. Now, that word cheerful in the Greek, it's, it's hilaron. It, it means being full of cheer or merriment, glad, happy. It's where we get our English word hilarious or hilarity from. You see, the ones who give merrily to God, they actually know a secret. You know what that secret is? You can't outgive God. Can't do it. That dog won't hunt. You know what I'm saying? There was a friend way back when we lived in Oklahoma City, a guy named Jeremy, had a drum set that he loved, but he sold it. Got 700 some odd dollars for this drum set, but he sold his, his precious drum set because he was wanting to buy bracelets. They were called Hope for Hadley bracelets. Hadley was a little girl, had a terminal illness, and he was buying the bracelets to sell and to raise money for research for this little girl who was very, very sick. Well, the story actually made the news. A benefactor saw the story in the local uh, news, actually bought him a brand new set of drums because of his generosity towards this little girl. I mean, just, just an everyday occurrence of how you cannot outgive God. Do you know why God made us a prosperous people? So that we can give more. So that he can bless us more. So that we can give more. So that he can bless us more. <laughs> you see, it's just a self-perpetuating cycle. A little bit later there in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, Paul says, you will be enriched in every way for all generosity which produces thanksgiving to God through us. Folks, I'll, I'll be honest, I realize there's, there's times when people don't give out of their abundance because they really don't see how the church is putting their monetary gifts to work. You know, I think it's kind of one of those uh, chicken or the egg type scenarios. You know, the church may not be having a great presence in the community, in evangelism, remissions, because of a lack of funds. But is there a lack of giving because people don't perceive the work of the gospel as being done? Or is the work of the gospel not being done because of a lack of giving? Folks, there is so much that needs to be done 
for the cause of Christ. I mean, stuff beginning right here at Beach Street First Baptist Church. And yes, it is admittedly challenging. I mean, in addition to funding the ministries that are in place here, and missions work, charitable work, uh, stuff like what Katie Leatherwood's doing in Latvia, um, and all of the other things that we're doing. It's challenging. It is, you know, it's not like we have unlimited resources just coming out of our ears. But, you know, we, we have... We have some needs. I mean, there's two more full-time staff positions that we need to fill. Insurance costs are rising. Uh, there's always utilities to be paid. And, and let's be honest, with a building that's 116 years old, there's always considerable maintenance costs. So the need is always there. But you see, those things are not things we should have to worry about as long as each one of us is faithful to do our part, to give back to God just a portion of what already belongs to him, that which he has entrusted to us to be stewards of. Folks, I believe that God is doing a great work here at Beach Street First Baptist Church. I think he's got tremendous plans for us. Haven't seen all of those yet. Don't know how that's going to unfold. But you know what? I know he is good. And so I know his plans for us are good. And you know what? He's going to accomplish great things in this church body with or without your giving. Well, I don't know about you. I personally, I don't want to miss out on the blessings that God might have in store for me because I chose to be faithful with my finances. So we see that giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of holiness. Giving is an act of obedience. Giving is an act of love. But here's, here's the last one, the letter E in your acronym. Giving is an act of evangelism. Going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 again, verse 13. Paul told the church at Corinth, because of the proof provided by this ministry, others will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. Did you realize that? That giving is a profession of your faith in Christ. It's a testimony of trust. Greatest surprise of little Mary's life was receiving a $20 bill on her birthday. Man, she strutted around the house. She was showing that $20 bill off to anybody who would pay attention. And her mom asked her, Mary, what are you going to do with that $20 bill? Mary says, I want to take it to Sunday school. Mom says, oh, to show your teacher? Oh, no, said Mary. I'm going to give it to God. He'll be as surprised as I am to get something besides pennies. You see, when you give to God, you're stating that God is so very important to you that you're going to give him your all, including your billfold your pocketbook. That's a non-verbal testimony that you give, both to other believers, but also to the world, saying, I have placed my faith, my trust in the God who made me. For many of us, that is a true sign of transformation that God has done in our hearts and in our lives. Church, my prayer for all of us is that we may truly worship God 
partaking in an act of holiness by being obedient to his word, by uh, confessing our love for him because he first loved us. Henry Ford very astutely said one time, you can't take your money with you, but you can send it on ahead. See, Jesus spoke to that in Matthew 6 when he said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Believers, we need to be investing in the kingdom of God. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.